Father, thank you for this wonderful morning and this opportunity you've given us to uh, to uh, worship you and to hear your word. And I do pray, Lord God, that you would uh, work in our hearts, uh, that you would help us to see ourselves rightly, you would help us to see you rightly, so that you would be greatly glorified in all things. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to be together and to be in your word, and we ask you to bless it now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's recording? All right, very good. All right. Well, you know, we see throughout Scripture this term repentance, and there are a lot of different views on what it is. Uh, uh, but the reality is it's crucial for us to understand what genuine repentance is. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a repentance in a sense that the world has at times. Uh, I've had uh, the privilege, and sometimes it's not a privilege, of counseling people. And uh, they will sometimes they will see their sin rightly. Uh, they'll, they'll respond rightly, and they'll turn to the Lord from it. And sometimes they just get upset and cry or whatever it might be, and there's a worldly sorrow. And uh, they might think they've repented, but have they really repented? Have they really repented? But the reality is God's word gives us a clear understanding of what genuine repentance looks like. So would you turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, and we're going to see from Jonah's life exactly that, what genuine repentance looks like. Now I'm going to review the context. We're in chapter 3 of Jonah. And uh, Jonah is a true story about a real prophet, 2 Kings 14. It's not a fish story. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's not a parable. It's a true story. It's a true story. And indeed, our Lord Jesus refers to it as absolutely true in Matthew chapter 12. And we see that in Luke chapter 11. Now as I've shared... uh, at the context, I've looked at two things, basically, for the context of the book of Jonah. One is Israel at the time of Jonah, and also Nineveh at the time of Jonah, or Assyria. Now, we know that Israel, uh, we see this from Genesis, moving up to the point in which we have our passage, was disobedient and on its way to exile. And indeed, uh, Israel uh, is at the point here where the kingdoms are divided because of Solomon's sin, And the book of Jonah takes place during the term or time of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. He was a very wicked king, and all we have about him recorded is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 29. Now we know that Israel is on its way to impending judgment being expelled from the land by the very Assyrians uh, that Nineveh is the capital of. It's going to happen in a little bit over... A little bit over a hundred years, they're going to be taken captive uh, in 722 B.C. Northern Kingdom will take them captive. Now, the term Jonah means this paper, by the way. <laughs> the term Jonah means dove, and uh, we see in Second Kings 14, as I referred to it before, that he is a prophet, and he was ministering to Israel in the Northern Kingdom at this time. Now, we also looked at the Ninevites. Uh, Although Israel was on its way to discipline, God's judgment through discipline, Nineveh was on its way to judgment. They were a wicked people. They were a violent people. They were a bloody people. Even the Ninevites, as we'll see today, acknowledge their sinfulness. They acknowledge their wickedness. And indeed, those same Ninevites, uh, as I mentioned um, um, years later would be the ones who come in that God uses to bear his discipline upon Israel to bring them uh, into captivity. But we find out also that this group of Ninevites uh, was not only uh, a wicked place, it was a bloody place. Nahum reveals it was a bloody city, Nineveh. It was, a, it was a, full of lies, a full of deceit, a very wicked place. And so then we have Nineveh, who is on its way to judgment, as we'll see today as Jonah declares that. Also, Nahum reveals that also. And then we have Israel, which is on its way to discipline, and that's where Jonah comes in. And let me review uh, what we saw in the last few weeks. Let me review this. I'll make sure I have all my notes here. 
you'll remember that uh, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and proclaim against it, uh, to preach against it. And Jonah, uh, because of his attitude towards the Ninevites, knowing that God was a compassionate God, he fled the presence of God. And Jonah went his own way, and he went to Tarshish. And he got on a ship, but the Lord does not allow him to get far. We see the Lord sends a great storm upon uh, the ship, and this, a storm so strong that they're about to perish. And the pagans there call on each of their own gods, and then they try to discern, who is this calamity uh, who has brought this upon us? And they cast lots, and the, and the lot falls on Jonah, and the cat's out of the bag. He's the reason why this is happening. He is running from uh, the Lord, the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. He's a Hebrew. He worships. He fears God. And these sailors are, are concerned. And uh, Jonah says, just throw me over, basically. But they're not willing to do that. They keep trying and trying to save the ship, and even, in this sense, Jonah. But out of this, it gets worse, and a wonderful thing happens. These sailors get saved. They call upon the name of the Lord, recognizing his sovereignty, and they then throw Jonah into the sea, and he is swallowed up by a great fish. Now, last week we saw in chapter 2 the depths that God would go to in his discipline. And we saw Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, a prayer in which he recounts his earlier prayer when he is drowning, a prayer that God answered and spared his life. Then we saw the fruit of God's discipline, God's discipline actually working in the life of Jonah. We saw that Jonah's deliverance uh, from death brings him to declare inside the slimy fish his thankfulness for God's loving, kind salvation. And then he shares his desire to obey. He's thankful for salvation, and he desires to fulfill his vows, to obey. He recognizes that salvation is from the Lord. And at this point, the discipline at this point was over, and God had the fish vomit Jonah up onto the shore. And so Jonah is brought within an inch of his life in the context of God's discipline, and this discipline bore forth fruit. He was thankful to the Lord. He desired to obey, and he recognized all salvations from the Lord. And then the Lord had the fish found him up. And this brings us to chapter 3, which we're going to look at today, a, a truly marvelous chapter where we're going to see what true repentance looks like. Now today we're going to see three things. We're going to see the repentance of Jonah. And we're going to see the repentance of the Ninevites. And we're going to see the relenting of God. So then let's take a look at our passage, Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city a three days' walk, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. He cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So the Lord gives clear commands on how Jonah is to serve him. He is to arise and to go and to proclaim God's message, the message that he would give him. Now, the word of the Lord, the word of the I am, Yahweh, the self-existent one, came to Jonah, but notice we have it the second time. God makes it clear it came the second time. Jonah didn't obey the first time. Now it's coming again, coming again. And so then here we have it came to the second time, and he is commanded to go to Nineveh, proclaim against it because of their wickedness, and we see this, and that's that's, uh, what he's to do here. We'll see, arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So then God ends the first session of Jonah's discipline, and he gives him another opportunity to be obedient. To be obedient. And he calls on Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he wants him to tell him the proclamation that he will give him. Now, this word proclamation, you might remember from chapter 1, speaks of calling out, proclaiming. In the Old Testament translation, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was originally in Hebrew, it uses the same word we have in the New Testament, caruso, which speaks of an official proclamation, a preaching. 
He is to preach to them. He is to proclaim to them. Indeed, the Lord in Matthew chapter 12, 41, uh, characterizes Jonah's message as preaching, that they repented at the preaching Caruso of Jonah. So he is to be preaching to Nineveh the proclamation which God will tell him. And so we have this, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. We know it's a huge city, as we'll see. And it's the, it's the superpower of the day, Assyria, it's the capital of that. And proclaim to it the proclamation which, now you might not see this in your Bibles, but in Hebrew, the I is emphatic here. In which I am going to tell you. Proclaim what I, the Lord is saying, am going to tell you. It's emphatic. It's emphatic. Now notice, on a side note, God doesn't tell Jonah, you need to go to a missionary training school and understand the culture. You need to study their religions, or they're not going to listen to what you have to say. God doesn't say that at all. Just proclaim my proclamation, the one I am going to tell you. Jonah's call, that is the call to Jonah, and anything short of that is, or beyond that, is rebellion. Is rebellion. He is, he is called to proclaim his proclamation. It's pretty clear that Jonah is what he's called to do. And brothers and sisters, nothing has changed for us. God calls pastors to proclaim his word, not their own minds. I read this earlier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I solemnly charge you, this is a solemn charge, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. doesn't say show video clips and give good stories. It says preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Indeed, we see in 1 Peter, in terms of the spiritual gifts that we are given, if you have a speaking gift, you are to speak the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let us speak as it were the very utterances of God. Whoever serves, serve with the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God will be glorified through Christ Jesus. But wouldn't it be better if the Ninevites, if Jonah understood their culture, if we saturated ourselves in their society, became their friends, and made a bridge to share God's word? This is the mindset of evangelicals. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with uh, being friendly to your neighbors and having the opportunities of the doors that God might open. But the reality here is, Jonah is called to share the word of God, what God tells him. And we are called to do the same thing. The gospel, as we will see, is the power of God unto salvation. And it is foolishness to those who are perishing. Therefore, foolish pastors and foolish people try to add to it because they recognize it's not working from their standpoint, but they don't realize it's foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. And we'll see later on, praise the Lord, Jonah doesn't add a message to it, he just shares God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, a lot going on these days in churches, that the cross of Christ should be made vo- not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul says, For I am not ashamed, verse 16 of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He says, or To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. We know from the book of James, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth through the word, uh, it says here, through the word of truth. God used his word to convict us of sin and to reveal the Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ. James 1.21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to to save your souls. We have been born again, 
we have been born again, as we see in First Peter. Actually, turn there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. First Peter 1, verse 23. First Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. If anyone says you get regenerated in the past and then you believe later when you hear the gospel, that's not true. We're born again through the living and abiding word of God. That's when we're born again. For all flesh is like grass and all glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the fire falls off, but the word of the Lord abides to ever, forever. And this is the word which was what? Preached to you. It was the word of God. The word of God. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, they were having a pride issue there in 1 Corinthians. The first three chapters, Paul is uh, tearing down their, their pride, basically, that no one would boast. That's really what those first three chapters are about in 1 Corinthians. And he's going to use his own example in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as an example of how they should be by remembering how he was. First Corinthians 2, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, this should be day one in preaching class. He says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about Christ knowing and depending on him. And he says here, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And I mentioned this earlier in Second Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, Paul tells Timothy, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Timothy, that's who he's talking to, continue in the things which you've learned. He's going to say what you've learned is the word of God. And been convinced of knowing from where you've learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's by the word we gain the wisdom to come to faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed. So Jonah is commanded to proclaim the proclamation which the Lord says, I will tell you. No training, just obediently proclaim the word of God. Obediently proclaim the word of God. Jonah was told to get up and go to Nineveh and proclaim the Lord's proclamation. And notice, he obeys. He obeys. He goes right away and he proclaims the message, as we'll see, of impending judgment. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went. Isn't that great? Quite different than chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Jonah arose and went. He's obeying. He learned his lesson from his discipline. And we need to learn that, right? Now, God's got more work to do on him, but he's learned. He's learned his lesson. Now, this term arise, so, or excuse me, so Jonah arose and went. The term went is literally the Hebrew word halak, which means to walk. He arose and walked to Nineveh. Now, that's a long ways. That's a long ways, according to the word of the Lord. That means he's obeying God's word. So discipline of Jonah is working. He obeys, more specifically, according to the word of the Lord. And what has changed since chapter 1? What has changed? Jonah got the same command with the opposite direction, but he was disciplined to the point of death almost. But now Jonah has is fulfilling the vow he made in the belly of the fish. He's going to obey. And he obeys his command. And as I said last time, I believe this is the fruit of a Repentant heart, albeit Jonah still has some attitudes that God is going to work on, as we're going to see. But it's the first step is to obey God, and Jonah does. You see, our problem is sin. Our problem is disobedience. Our problem is sin. God says, uh, do this, we do that. God says, think this way, we think that way. God says, say this, we say that. We disobey, whether it's in word or deed or thought. But the first step is, 
in responding is obedience. It's obedience. You might remember when we look at, looked at the book of Haggai, there was a, the disobedience people. How did God work through them? First of all, he revealed how they were disobedient, that they weren't about his work and they needed to get about his work. And then they did get about his work in obedience, and then he worked on their attitudes. But the first attitude that needs to be addressed is our willingness to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey him. Now, in churches, there's some bad theology going around these days. It's always a twist. It's always a little mix-up here and there. A theology where people would propagate it, where if you don't feel like obeying, don't obey them. Because if you don't feel like it, you're not obeying at all. That's their, their, their statement. But that's totally wrong. We walk by faith, not by sight. We may not feel like it, but we step out in obedience to the Lord. And God changes our hearts and attitudes as we do so. And we will see this in Jonah. I'm not talking about a rote obedience, talking about an actual obedience that is based on God working in our hearts. We step out and obey, and then God changes our hearts and our attitudes. The first change that comes is the willingness to obey God, the willingness to obey him. And we step out in obedience apart from feelings. We walk by faith, not by sight. So Jonah responds to God's heavy-handed discipline, and he gets up and goes from wherever, whatever beach he was spit out on, right? And uh, he gets up and goes, and he walks at least 500 miles. This is no small journey. It's a considerable time to get there, 500 miles by foot. We have a problem going 10 miles, right? This is 500 miles by foot, by foot. So he does it. And you might remember the Ninevites were an enemy of Israel. And indeed, they would take them into captivity a little over a generation. They were an enemy of Israel. And so then, uh, they were wicked and evil, and they did things that we can't even speak of. The historians talk about the wickedness of the Ninevites. They don't call it wickedness. They talk about the violence of them. But it's pretty bad. And obviously, Jonah hated them. We see this in chapter 4. Jonah wanted them to be destroyed by the Lord. Because Jonah, as we'll see, was so unlike God in his compassion. God is a compassionate God who will relent, as we'll see today. But Jonah was not compassionate, and God had to show him and teach him about compassion. And that's one of the big things we'll see in the book of Jonah that we need to be taught and reminded of also. So then we see the fruit of God's discipline on Jonah. He went on this long journey. Uh, He wasn't willing to go before. He's obeying now. Maybe reluctantly, as we'll see, but he is obeying. He is obeying. And this obedience took some time, and it was still not complete. So what happens when he arrives in Nineveh, the great city, the capital of Assyria, the superpower of the day? Now, Nineveh, end of verse 3, was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. That means it would take three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. That's a big city. And he says here uh, that, verse 4, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. This is the first part. It's one day into it, okay? And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is the message that God told Jonah. Now, we don't know the rest of what Jonah shared with them. but We know this is at least part of the message. But later on, we're going to see, we're going to see later on that they understood that God was angry at them for their sin. That God had burning anger towards them. And so Jonah proclaimed the message that God had told him to speech. And here, the term overthrown means turned over. It means uh, it's symbolic of being destroyed. Destroyed. <coughs> Forty days, Nineveh is destroyed. Now, what's the significance about 40 days? Well, in Scripture, we see it with the flood. We see it with Moses on the mountain. We see it with the spies in the land. We see it with Elijah on Mount Horeb. We see it with Ezekiel on his side. We see it with Jesus fasting in the wilderness 40 days for his temptation. We see 40 days he appeared after his resurrection to many. Is there any significance here? Well, it doesn't say. But we seem to have this time, 40 days, and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. 
God sets in his timetable when his judgment will come. And here he is declaring to Nineveh 40 days and his judgment, as we'll see, for their sin will come. Now, folks, now we're going to see today the response of these uh, these uh, Ninevites. We're going to see the response. Because Jonah is definitely declaring a message of judgment. Verse 9, later on, who knows God may turn and relent, they say, and withdraw his burning anger that we should not perish. They understood it was God's judgment for their sinful ways. God's judgment for their sinful ways. They understood the message of impending judgment for sin. And I will tell you, I believe that's the part that's missing from many of our Gospels. The message of impending judgment for sin. And then the solution, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. The good news. You see, we're going to see one of the greatest revivals in history came about because Jonah obediently proclaimed all that the Lord would tell him, which contained the message of impending judgment for sin. Impending judgment for sin. And folks, we have, sadly, these phony baloney evangelical revivals and baptisms fueled by professions of false converts who have not heard the full gospel or who have heard a false one. These converts don't recognize they're going to stand before a holy God who will judge them for their sin, and they will perish experiencing everlasting punishment. And the only way out is through acknowledging your sin, repenting, turning to Christ for salvation from that sin. The reality is God has declared it as appointed man once to die and then the judgment. There is that judgment before the Lord for sin. But the Lord also makes it clear there is a judgment upon this world that is coming also. It is the day of the Lord. It is coming, Yahweh's day, spoken all throughout the Old Testament. And it reveals God's disdain for sin and for unrepentant sinners. His disdain for sin and unrepentant sinners. Look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Well... For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Well, the day of the Lord for uh, Nineveh was coming, right? Forty days. Now, this is the day of the Lord upon the earth, okay? Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Verse 8 of Isaiah 13. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor, they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, one with coming cruel and with a fury of and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light, the sun will be dark when it arises when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. You know, someone says, how can God let all this terrible things happen? How come he doesn't deal with evil? Well, God is a patient God, because if he dealt with evil, he'd have to deal with everyone that is not in Christ. And he is a patient God, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But there is a day in which he will deal with those who have not repented. And the wicked for their iniquity, and I'll put an end to the arrogance of the proud and the base, the haughtiness of the ruthless, and I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. The day of his burning anger. Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. All you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return to your own head. The reality is God is going to bring judgment. When you die, it is appointed man wants to die over the judgment. And then for those, when he comes back again in judgment, Christ comes, came first in grace, but he's going to come back in judgment again. We're going to see that it's not going to be a good time it's when he pours out his wrath on sin and sinners. Have you ever considered God's uh, the intensity of God's distaste for sin and sinners? No one will get away with anything. It will come back on you. 
Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. You see, God is gracious. Right now, we live in the time of grace. Instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. He took the full cup of God's wrath for our sins. He bore in our sins in his body on the cross, uh, our sins in his body on the cross, and he died and rose from the dead. He bore our sins in his body that we might live to righteous, live to God. Turn to Jesus Christ, because there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. John 5, 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, has passed out of death into life. We see in Hebrews chapter uh, 10, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says, the Lord will judge his people. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The book of Acts, the Apostle Paul makes it clear to those who were ignorant and now were informed. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, you should repent, we should repent, because there is a judgment day. That's why we need to repent, because there is judgment coming, and we need salvation only found in Jesus Christ. So then back to our text. We've seen Jonah begins right away to proclaim the Lord's message of impending judgment upon Nineveh. And let me ask you this, brothers and sisters, when is the last time you, led by the Lord and not your own wisdom, spoke the truth concerning judgment that is coming in the future to someone the Lord brings in your path? When's the last time you shared that? That Jesus is Lord of all, who humbled himself and came, took on human flesh, bore our sins, his body on the cross, rose from the dead. He is the judge. He has the keys to death in Hades. He has the authority to throw body and soul in hell. And he has declared, if you die in your sins, you will go to hell through his word. So then Jonah is simply preaching the truth of what would happen concerning the impending judgment of Nineveh. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's what he says. So let's see the the response of the Ninevites. We're going to see their repentance. Look at verse 5. This is amazing. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. There you go. Repentance doesn't come apart from faith, by the way. They are tied together. They are tied together. Then the people believed in God. Now it's obvious Jonah was a prophet of Israel. They knew the Israelites. They understood the God of Israel around there. Yet they had their own gods. But here they believed in God. That's Jonah's God, the true God. The one and only true God. And they called a fast and put sackcloth from the greatest, a sack from the greatest to the least of them. The people of Nineveh believed in God. God singular, the one and only true God. Here it is, the Lord your God is one. They heard the truth from the word that Jonah preached, that God told them, and they believed. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And folks, this was not an intellectual faith, a faith that does not work, a faith that's not genuine. It was a faith that produced genuine work. Notice, they believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is amazing. This is amazing. It's a huge city, the capital, the superpower of the world. They believed in God. And they responded in humility before him. They called, or literally proclaimed, the same word we saw earlier, and they put a fast, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. Well, what is this idea of fasting and sackcloth? What is this idea? What do we see in Scripture? Well, we see this uh, reveals basically uh, uh, a sign of sorrowful, humble repentance. 
a sign of sorrowful, humble repentance. Uh, it can also be a sign of sorrow in a general sense. People would put on sackcloth and ashes if there were sorrow, they were mourning over something. But here specifically, it is a mourning over their sin. It is a mourning over the sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We see this, and Scripture reveals it is no evidence of repentance. Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Joel 2.11, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. That's the first part. My heart, turn to the Lord. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Hey, there should be evidence of something changed in your heart. And rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. So what's this idea of putting on sackcloth? Well, sackcloth was a, a thick uh, goat's hair, a coarse, rough, and thick, and it was obviously made to use sacks. And here we see this used in two ways. Obviously, one, as I shared before, a visible sense of grief or a visible sense of mourning or repentance over sin. For instance, David and the elders covered themselves with sackcloth when David acknowledged his sin of numbering his armies when he was incited by Satan. You can see that in First Chronicles. We know that in the book of Nehemiah, fasting and sackcloth is associated with mourning and confession of sin. Nehemiah 9.1, Now on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled fasting and sackcloth with dirt on them, and the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Had to do with confessing sin. Confessing sin. We see when King Ahab was convicted of his sin by Elijah, he uh, went before the Lord with fasting and sackcloth. First Kings 21. You can look at that. We know Daniel, when he prayed, this humble confession of sin, it was in sackcloth. And he re- when he realized that Israel had been disciplined for 70 years, and that 70 years was up, Daniel 9. And lastly, notice our Lord declares this truth in Matthew 11. Matthew 11:21. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Genuine repentance, genuine change of heart, genuine faith, but a visible change of demeanor because of that. Because of that. So then I believe this pointing on sackcloth and ashes and self-denial represents a, a, a outward action because of an inward change. He's not saying go do something so that you'll be repentant. Because they were repentant, they were doing that. It was an inward change that brought about an outward action. It's a visible sign of repentance. Repentance. It's not simply putting sackcloth and ashes that means you're humble before the Lord. It's actually being humble before the Lord, which was manifest in this. So then they clearly repented, as we'll see, at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, Jesus says in Matthew 12:41, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented. Amazing work through the word of God from the God of the word. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, besides this, uh, this we see this, the judgment, the Ninevites actually, here as we'll see, uh, some people wonder, well, did the Ninevites just get saved from their, from their situation physically and that's all they got saved from? Well, the reality is no, that's not true. We'll see later on that the Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah and they're going to rise up at the judgment. They were saved. And as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 6, only the saints will judge the world, not unbelievers. So then, we have the people's repentance. Now what about the king? Look back in our passage, Jonah chapter 3. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, when the word reached him, it's the preaching, I believe, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. So the word of God from the prophet Jonah reached him. His heart was changed. The implication is he believed also, as we'll see. 
He believed the truth of God. He believed that God was going to judge them for their sin. You see, if you believe that God is the judge and he's going to judge you for your sin, you're going to want to escape that judgment. You're going to want to escape. You're going to want to get the provision of what God reveals is that escape, as we will see, and it's in Christ. So the king of Nineveh, here's the word, the most powerful man at his time in the world. When the word reached him, he got up his throne, laid aside his robe. This is humility, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. This is a sign, again, of a humble repentance, a mourning over sin. And notice his response. Notice his response. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let a man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but eat or drink water. But both man and must must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly. That's amazing. That each man may turn from his wicked way, from the violence which he has in his hands, which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. He got the message. God is angry over our sin and we're going to perish. He got the message. Have you got the message? That God is angry over your sin and you are going to perish eternally? But he has given provision. If you, if you get it and you turn from your sin to Christ, you can be saved. You can be saved. So the king makes a proclamation. And within this proclamation, I believe, we see four elements that show us what repentance looks like. What genuine repentance looks like. Notice, first of all, there's this, uh, there's this uh, visible humbling and mourning over sin. Do not let man, beast, herd, flock, taste a thing. And the middle seven, do not let them drink, drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. There's a visible humbling and mourning over sin. Here we have the decree to everybody that there should be a visible humility before God. Now notice it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop this. This came from the heart. The second part we see not only a visible humility, there is a calling upon the Lord. And this is where so many people... Uh, where they where they fall short, and let men call on God earnestly. The term means mightily. Pray to God. Pray to God. Let him call on God earnestly. And notice, there's a turning from their sin that each may turn from his wicked way and violence, which is in his hands. There's a visible humbling. There's a calling upon God. There's a turning from sin. Now, I, I, I like the NASB, but unfortunately in verse uh, 8, it obscures it a little bit. I, I'd probably like to say it this way instead. And let men call upon God earnestly and, not that, but and let each turn from his wicked way from the violence of his hands. Call upon him earnestly. Not that you would turn, but call and then turn. Call and then turn. The Hebrew word turn here means, uh, in Hebrew, shuv, it means to turn. It speaks of repentance, relenting, returning or relenting. Let them, let them repent. Let them turn from their wicked way. Turn from their wicked way. Biblical repentance is a turning to God from sin based on a genuine response to his word by faith. It is a change of mind, New Testament metanoia, but this change of mind is brought about by a belief in God's word, which then produces a genuine change, a turning to God. You know, don't when someone says, oh, metanoia, repentance just means a change of mind, uh, they change their mind, but then they don't have a change of behavior. That's not true. If you don't truly change your mind about God judging you and your need for salvation, even though you, you believe that, you don't change your, truly change your mind, you're not going to change your attitudes and your actions. Metanoia speaks of a change of mind that is followed in a change of behavior. If you change your mind truly, you're going to change your behavior, right? If you did not believe you're going to be judged for your sin, but now you believe in your mind you're going to be judged for your sin, you're going to change. You're going to turn, if that's true. And it is. So notice what he says here. Notice there's lastly, there's a recognizing of God's right to judge. 
So you have a godly sorrow, you have a seeking, calling upon God, you have a turning from sin, and then lastly, there's a godly sorrow. Look at verse 9. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. This is incredible. There was no promise that if they turned, God would relent. It was just a message of judgment from the God, the true one and only true God, and they believed in that God. And they recognized that they needed to repent, and they did. And who knows, maybe God will relent of his burning anger. And we know that he did. And we know he did. And we know that they got more than just saved physically. We know that they were saved spiritually, as the Lord Jesus speaks of the men of Nineveh who repented. They believed. They believed. They believed in God's right to judge. It's interesting, we have this phrase, God's burning anger. And again, how many times do you ever see repentance like this? Where people are convicted of their sin because of God's right to judge them. And they mourn over their sin over a holy God and they call upon his name to be saved. Turning from their sin. Now on a side note, this doesn't mean uh, from this passage that uh, we, Jonah just could choose and say Jonah, Jonah could just go to Portland and start preaching there. Yet 40 days, Portland will be overthrown. The reality is God told Jonah specifically what to say. And we don't take this passage and run out and tell everybody, just start proclaiming it. We need to be careful. We don't want to cast our pearls before swine. Very clearly in in, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. We need to have discernment, and we need to pray for open doors. But when God opens those doors, we need to proclaim his word. There is judgment, but Jesus Christ bore the punishment for your sins in your place. If you call Him on him, you turn to him from your sin, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be saved. The reality is we should be praying for open doors for the gospel, and when God opens them, then we share We show the truth. There is a judgment day. There's judgment for sin. But God sent his son Jesus instead. The good news. The bad news is there's a hell and there's a punishment. But the good news is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. Colossians chapter 4. Paul says in verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word. Again, we don't just take this passage and go downtown and start yelling, repent everybody. Paul understood in his context that God had to open the door. And with Jonah, God gave him clear commands to go to that city and to proclaim that to them. To them. And so back to our passage, what's the bottom line? The Ninevites repented. They repented. Is this not what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12? Turn to Matthew chapter 12. They repented. Matthew twelve thirty eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Sounds like people in church these days. That's what they want. They want to show. We want to show, or I'll go to a different church. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They repented. They repented. And I mentioned this earlier. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we have the, Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The men of Nineveh got saved. They got saved. They got saved. They responded to the word of God from Jonah. They got saved. They repented. They changed their minds concerning their understanding of sin and judgment and the God of Israel. And they believed in him. And they called upon him, and they turned from their ways. They had a humble heart before it. These Ninevites changed their mind. 
And salvation, as we see, is a work of God. You see, God is a compassionate God. He's a gracious God. And God uses his word to bring about repentance. He uses his word. He's a kind God. He's the one that brings it about. He's the one that brings it about. Let's take a look at a few passages. It's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you not, do you not, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's character leads to repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer any loss from us, Paul shares with the Corinthians. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. God causes us to be broken over our sin, and it produces a turning to him for forgiveness and salvation from that sin. Second Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 25, that perhaps God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God grants it. But he grants it through his convicting word, if you're willing to respond. If you're willing to respond. So what an amazing passage. We see Jonah's repentance. He obeys, preaching what God told him to preach, and to whom God told him to preach, and what, and what. And then we see the repentance of the Ninevites. This is about 400,000, 500,000 people repenting. What an amazing thing. And then notice we see the repentance of God, but this is not a repentance from sin because God does not sin. The term repentance means a turn. It's a turn. Verse 10 in our passage, Jonah chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. When God saw their actions, which were a manifestation of their hearts, by the way, if you repent and you don't change, that's not repentance at all. He saw it. He relented. (coughs) And it says, he did not do it. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul shared? There's a fruit of repentance. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 26. There's fruit of repentance. It's like it breaks my heart at times, like I shared earlier in counseling. Uh, people who say they repent and all I see is tears, a worldly sorrow, no change in their lives. No change in their lives. Just crying when they're convicted. It's a worldly sorrow. Rather than a change, a mourning, that, that sorrow that brings about repentance. Acts 26, verse 16. This is... Uh, the Lord Jesus speaking to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. He's recounting it uh, to, to the king, Agrippa, I think it is. Or, he says here, but arise and stand on your feet. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to Paul, verse 16. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. See, the word of God brings the knowledge of salvation, that they may see it and understand, then turn from darkness to light, turn to Christ, from the domain of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins, turning from sin to Jesus to be forgiven, right? And see, and an inheritance among those, among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says here to Paul. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those Damascus first and then also at Jerusalem and all throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There's going to be a change in your life. It's not perform deeds to repent. It's repentance that brings about a change. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 24 says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, says here, 
in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he goes on. God is declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge. That's the message. And then the message of salvation, the good news is in Jesus Christ, that he sent his son, he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and you can have forgiveness in him. Genuine faith in Christ will produce genuine repentance. They believed in God and they repented, didn't they? Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. It's not a work. It's God's work. It's the work of salvation of living God through his word. These Ninevites got saved physically from God's wrath. And did they go to hell? No. The Lord Jesus says they will rise up in the judgment, and only saints are the ones who judge, as I mentioned. They got saved. They got saved. Now, the last thing I want to point out is that um, God does declare calamity and judgment and he will do what he says. There is a terrifying expectation of judgment for those who do not repent and trust in Christ. But he will relent if you will repent. God will do what he says, but he will relent. He will turn from his burning anger because it's satisfied in Christ. Because his son bore our sins in his body on the cross. And you'll be saved. And you'll have eternal life. But you need to see yourself rightly. You need to see your sin rightly. You need to turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Are you willing to do so? Are you willing to repent? Because if you will, God will relent. And he will save you through his son, Jesus. So then, what does true repentance look like? It's a change of mind brought about through belief in God's word, which produces a genuine change, a turning to God from sin. That's what it looks like. That's what it is. There's a humbling morning before God because of sin. There's an earnest calling upon him and thus a turning from sin. And there's a recognition of his right to judge. And they're all tied up in the context of faith. Where are you at today, friend? Has the word of God convicted you concerning God's judgment? Which he will pour out upon you for your sin forever? Will you turn to God and cry out to him? For salvation, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will relent if you will repent. What about us believers? Well, first of all, examine yourself. Have you truly trusted in the Lord? Have you truly repented of your sins? You know, you may not be able to verbalize it, but when you got saved, you realized you're a sinner. You realize you're in sin and you're in trouble and you just turned to Christ. You may not be able to verbalize in all these words, but you knew that and you turned to Christ for salvation. Is that truly the case? Have you repented? Has your heart been laid bare like the Ninevites? What about those of us who have repented and been saved? What can we learn? Well, first of all, we need to obey God and do what he says, or he will discipline us. Because we are in his family, and he disciplines those whom he loves. And he could take that discipline all the way to the point of death. We need to obey We need to obey with a good attitude. We also need to obey even if our attitude isn't quite there yet. We need to ask God to help us. We need to confess that. The first step is to obey. Secondly, we need to see and understand what true repentance is. So when we declare the gospel, we understand what we need to share. We need to share that there is a judgment and that the person we're sharing to is in deep trouble as we were. But yet Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And he'll save you from that if you call out to him. He'll save you. We need to share the gospel when God leads us. We need to pray for open doors. We need to share the whole gospel. God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the man Jesus Christ, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Are you ready to share those truths? Is it in your heart ready to go when God opens that door? Ready to share Christ. I want to be a faithful ambassador. I want to be a faithful steward. I want to proclaim what God says. And I want us all to do the same in the openings that God gives for each and every one of us, that we'd be ready to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for...
the repentance of the Ninevites. They responded to your word, what you told Jonah to say, he said. And Lord, we praise you. And someday we'll meet them, the men of Nineveh, uh, who repented at the preaching of Jonah. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's not saved or anyone listening that's not saved, that they would repent at the preaching that you've brought through your word today. They would turn and believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and be saved. And Father, for those of us who are saved, may we be obedient. May we trust you and obey you. May we walk with you. May we pray, Lord, and I pray that you would open doors for the gospel, that we would know when they're open, and we would speak what you want us to speak when you open those doors so that people would be saved. I pray for that. Pray that in Jesus' name.